This episode is brought to you by MyProducer.io, a new marketplace for film, TV, and commercial production staffing. MyProducer.io is a community focused on connecting talented producers and hiring managers with the next generation of crew. Job seekers can create a profile and apply to jobs absolutely for free. Employers can create one-week postings for free, or they can choose from a handful of paid options. Visit MyProducer.io today and use code HWOOD25 to receive 25% off any paid posting. In this episode, Jasper Gray and I speak with freelance director Brian Tan. Brian is also the co-founder of Rapple, an online platform for booking top filming locations. We kick off the conversation with Brian explaining how he got his start in the film industry, working behind the scenes in visual effects on such notable films as Tron Legacy and X-Men First Class. We also talk about the progression of his career. Later, we discuss the challenges of breaking into the filmmaking industry, how the industry is an attempt to commercialize art, and how digital is altering the industry as a whole. Brian gives his advice for making it, and we also talk about the necessity of a tribe to help you along the way. Lastly, we go down entrepreneur lane to explore the creation of Rapple. Brian is a unique, passionate, and high-energy guy, so I'm sure you'll get some insights from this one. Enjoy. Okay, we're here with Brian Tan, freelance director and co-founder of Rapple. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you on the show. Excited to talk about a lot of things, your career, how you founded Rapple, and I know we've got a lot of cool stories that you and I have talked about offline, so we're going to delve into those, but first off, Tell us how you got into the industry. I mean, it's a interesting story. As with everyone's story, it's always very unique. And I would say mine is a, a series of bad mistakes. I'm kidding. No, it's a, it was a series of perhaps, I guess, misadventures, for lack of a better word. I had always done film in high school. It was like the medium of choice for me. Back in the day, our English lit professor gave us an assignment to make one Shakespeare play into a modern video adaptation. And I chose Titus Andronicus, which was the most deadly, I guess, in terms of body count out of all of Shakespeare's like productions. And so I made it into a mafia movie and then it became this whole crazy thing as an homage to Godfather. And so from there, I basically decided to go to college to pursue film. I started off by telling my parents I was going to do political science, which is a complete lie. I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I wasn't going to do politics. And I started UCLA's first and only film and photography club back in 2006. And so from there, believe it or not, at UCLA, the film school at the time didn't really believe in digital. I went up to them. I was like, hey, I want to start a film club. They were like, oh, no, you can't. You don't believe this whole digital video thing. That's a fad. 35 millimeter. That's the way of the future. And so I was like, oh, interesting. So I didn't really believe them, obviously. And I started this film club. And from there, it kind of just blossomed. I always wanted to be the next Michael Bay, you know, the next action director, blockbuster, popcorn, this summer kind of guy. And so because of that, I made these action films over and over again in college. And I kind of got my experience doing that. And after college, I got recruited by DreamWorks. And then after that, I worked at Paramount for a little bit while concurrently freelancing as a director. And from there, kind of the rest is history and still history in the making. I'm still not where I want to be yet. I'm still very much working on it, as we all are here in Los Angeles. And uh, that's where the journey has brought me so far, I guess. Very cool. So starting out, what do you think was the most challenging aspect of getting your foot in the door anywhere? 
I think the most challenging aspect of the film industry that still applies now all these more than a decade later is the fact that film is not really a meritocracy. We grew up believing the American dream that hard work plus talent equals success. In the film industry, you need hard work and you need talent, but that will only get you halfway there. The other half is more or less network, uh, which is basically connections, and timing, which is a subset of luck. And because of that, I was very naive at the beginning, thinking that just hard work and talent will get me there, and that'll get you halfway there. So to me, the toughest challenge was overcoming this mentality that if I just kept doing it over and over again and was decently talented, I would make it. It had to be all four of those things put together. And that was a bit of a wake-up call for me because we were all engineered in this country to believe that it's all meritocracy. And in the film industry, you know, that's obviously part of it, but not often the case. You know, that's why everyone has a unique success story, right? I mean, or even a unique story of how they joined the industry. If it were straightforward, no one would ever ask that question because they're like, oh, you went to film school, then you got a job and you know, that's it, right? In the film industry, your success is this roundabout, zigzag, all up and forward, false starts, back and forth. There is no prescription and there is no defined path in the film industry. And that's been one of the biggest challenges, even for me till this day. It's kind of all nebulous and ambiguous. You know, everyone in Los Angeles is on the verge of making it. And the question is, what would that lucky break be? And no one really knows. Totally agree. So... You know, I mean, that reminds me, we had Shane Stanley on the show recently, and he was talking about the fact that more than 80% of film school students never actually work in the film industry, which is kind of shocking. Parents out there are listening are probably like, you're definitely not going to film school. <laughs> so I'm, I'm killing someone's film school dreams. But what I keep coming back to again and again, even being in the industry, is why is it like that? Like, why are we so clan-like and I don't know I don't even know there's so many ways to describe it but we haven't really evolved in terms of this way that the industry is in over 100 years. I agree I think a large part of it has to do with the fact that this is a bit of a cottage industry still because it's art in some ways and the sort of intersection between art and commerce you have a situation where you're trying to commercialize art but art is inherently subjective so you end up in a situation where the gatekeepers that curate this art have very arbitrary parameters on who they allow in. Because it's not like, let's say, you want to be a doctor. You basically have to get certified. And there's an, a very objective way of certifying, okay, you've done your you know, medical school, now your residency, all these kind of things. Sure, there are things like bedside matter that are qualitative, but on the whole, it is a much more quantitative experience. You can go, okay, you've completed a checklist of item A through Z, and therefore you are a doctor. You may not be a great doctor, but you are a doctor. In the film industry, there's no checklist to say, oh, you are a, at least a competent director, you're a competent producer, you're a competent filmmaker. There is no metric for it, because the metric is decided by the gatekeepers who decide whether or not your art is good enough. And that is always a very loosely defined thing, because what some person might say is great art to some other person would find completely atrocious. And so because of that, who is let in, who is defined as a great filmmaker, who is given their chance, who's given a shot, who's given an opportunity, is essentially very indescribable just because it's so ambiguous and controlled by very, very few people. Definitely. What's interesting and exciting about the time that we're in right now is that with Netflix, Amazon, you know, Hulu, some of these digital companies leading the charge, 
And then also a subset of companies like, and we know the folks over at Slated, Jasper and I do, that are trying to put more rigorous metrics and trying to bring some kind of meritocracy to what's happening. We actually are, I think, on the advent of looking to more objective measures to art. And that's interesting because you look at, and this is just one anecdote, but you know, over at Netflix, they're actually seeing data that suggests that films that have a diverse cast and that reflect a diverse story range are actually performing better. And so they're greenlighting more scripts and more shows and more features that reflect that. And that's really cool. So I think we have a lot of work to do, though. What else do you think can be happening in the industry to that end? I think that's always a double-edged sword. I think the sort of I guess the deconsolidation of the outlets in which you view media have created a very good effect in the sense that there's a positive and negative. The positive is that you absolutely have these situations where Netflix, for example, goes by their data and the analytics of what makes a particular program great, and therefore they keep propagating that. In the case of diversity, that's also a fantastic thing. So you have the situation where because there's so many outlets now, there's web, there's digital, there's... TV shows, there's features, everything is getting so, I guess, desegregated and so, I guess, discombobulated in some ways because they're all spread out. Back in the day, in the, say, even in the 90s, you really only had certain mediums, right? You only really had TV and features, and but everybody knew Friends, right? Everybody knew Breakfast Club. Everybody knew all these films that were sort of like cultural icons. So the negative of having entertainment being so disparate is the fact that you can make content now for just your demographic, which might only be 0.1% of the population, which is great. You get your stories told, your demographic is happy, but you're going to have such less of an impact as you would in the past, as would you say on a cultural hit show like Friends. And so because of that, at the same time, it gives people opportunities, but also limits the amount of influence and the amount of eyeballs that will actually see it. I mean, you've seen it with the digital revolution till this day. Before 2005, or even say before 2000, if you made a feature film, you were one out of maybe, I don't know the exact metrics, but let's say you were arbitrarily one of maybe 100 people making features in this town because it was so hard to make a feature. You'd have to go buy 35mm film. It was so much more expensive. But because of that, there was this high gate threshold for you getting in. And so when you finally made your content, there was a higher chance of people seeing it because there wasn't that much out there. Unfortunately, nowadays, you can make a feature, you can make your short film, but because everybody's doing it, it's so much harder to rise above the noise and rise above the clutter. Like, you made a video, you put it on YouTube, great, so have literally billions of people. How will your film get seen? Yeah, I think you hit on something that's really important because at no other point in history has there been so much content, so much great content, and so much terrible content, right? And so... It is an ocean of content. And, you know, if you look at all of the digital publishers like the Vox Medias of the world that have started to invest heavily into creating original content for digital, they've been hemorrhaging. You know, if you look at the headlines, there's tons of these companies that have hired and then they laid off the vast majority of their staff because they are suffering from trying to break through all of this clutter. So, I do think that it's a great time because there is so much content. But to your point, there is something that we need to do to make it so that, again, the great content rises a little bit more easily. Because I think the only alternative we have now is that 
the great marketers are the ones that are going to get their content seen. Right? So the good influencers who have followings, the companies that know how to run really elite marketing campaigns, and of course, the really big studios that just have a lot of money to be able to push those marketing campaigns, right? I agree. And as a filmmaker, it's especially challenging for folks, I guess, like me who aren't, I'm not the type of person, maybe I grew up in the wrong generation, but I'm just not the type of person that I want every part of my life documented. That's just not me. I don't want to be Ryan Higa or Ryan Connolly or there's a lot of Ryans that are YouTube stars. It's kind of funny, huh? But um, there are a lot of these guys that basically sit a camera there like Casey Neistat does a vlog every day. And the way that they articulate themselves is through their personality and as well as their content. For me, film and creating all this art for me is my outlet. I'm fairly charismatic and I don't mind being in front of the camera, but I don't want the camera in front of me 24 seven like these guys do. And because I'm just not that kind of content creator, I get penalized because of that. And I think that's the problem with the digital revolution and YouTube in general and all this whole influencer thing. It only allows a certain type of filmmaker to rise to the top. But if I was a filmmaker that only expressed myself through what I create as opposed to who I am, that puts me at a huge disadvantage. And because of that, I think that's one of my major critiques of this whole influencer system. I don't take selfies every day and, you know, I don't like to, you know, document what I ate for breakfast and that mocha chino latte thing with a little gold leaf on top. That's just not me. You know, I don't like documenting my life that way. And so, you know, oh yeah, so Jasper does, so he can totally be an influencer. We're totally going, <laughs> we're totally going to troll all your social media, by the exactly. way, and, and make sure that, that there is not a single narcissistic post. Right? There might be a few. There so, might be yeah. a couple. We're, right? we're, it, it wouldn't be the film industry if we, were, if we weren't hypocrites. So. We're also going to grab a great selfie after oh, this as well. Absolutely. We got to gotta be part of, stay true to it. You know, hashtag influencer, hashtag one of the other hashtags that are trending. Right. Insta good. That's on Instagram. <laughs> absolutely. Yes. So it's interesting. I didn't think the conversation would take this turn, but <laughs> I, I do think we pay homage to it because the influencer boom is huge, especially with brands. They're finding mm -hmm. a way to essentially close the gap between production and distribution because they just have to essentially go to one party and they get both. Right. And never in the history have they really been able to do that. They've always had to procure both of those services or both of those resources and to your point, I think it's creating a split in storytelling because you do have a lot of this content that is kind of free form. It's still storytelling. I don't want to discount it. And I think that so many influencers out there do entertaining, unique, very cool stuff. But at the same time, it is very different from the storytelling that you're talking about. I think there's an opportunity for these two worlds to merge better. I don't see anyone doing a really great job of it. I do see from time to time, we're seeing influencers jump into content that's created by creators like us. But I don't know how we bridge that gap. I don't know if you have any ideas. It is a very tough one. And let me just say for the record that I'm not knocking, you know, all the Casey Neistats of the world. I actually have huge admiration for people that can do that and have their life being documented so often. I actually really respect them for doing that because it's something that I could not bring myself to do. And the fact that they're willing to put themselves so out there and be so visible and stand in front of their product is truly admirable. And I don't mean that sarcastically. I, I think that's phenomenal. It's just not something that I want to do. 
at this point in time. Maybe I will in the future. I mean, I I honestly think I have a face for radio. I don't ever want to be in front of the camera. I'm not an actor for that reason. I I don't like being in front of the camera. I, I will do it if I have to. But so I admire people that have that ability to be so, for lack of a better word, like be so visible. So it's tough, right? It's really difficult to find that balance between you know, sort of that authentic sort of vlogger style influencer and also creating high quality premium content. Because a lot of times, and from having spoken with a lot of these influencers myself, a lot of time they're they're stuck in this dilemma because they're true, a lot of them want to truly create premium content, but at the same time have this delivery schedule of constantly posting on YouTube and this algorithm favors constantly posting on these vlogs that are not really that you know sort of high production value they're kind of just like a webcam or some sort of like talking head thing and they have to keep up to that schedule to essentially keep their subscribers happy and keep their you know sort of um, rankings high and so they're caught in this vicious cycle of yeah they want to create premium content but the way that youtube is set up and all these channels are set up is that they favor quantity over quality and this creates the situation where they're constantly chasing this like you know they're like a gerbil in that little um, hamster wheel i guess you know, just constantly going from vlog to vlog to vlog to vlog and trying to squeeze out as much premium time as possible. So it's a dilemma. I really don't have an answer, to be honest with you. Well, and in that way, I mean, we're talking about meritocracies. And I think that that's the new meritocracy. It's a different scale, right? The It's about how many influencers you have. Right. It's about how wide your network is, what your marketing dollars are. I mean, you know, we talk about the larger studios, but P&A campaigns are usually, they usually double the budget of a film. You know, so if as much money or more is getting put into the marketing than the budget for the actual film's creation and all of what the creators were paid, there's a new system in place and a new scale. You know, and I think that it comes down to how do we use digitalized technology, like how do we use technology, like my producer plug <laughs> and Rappel plug, to help artists, you mm -hmm. know, who don't might not have those resources. How do we help them compete in that same space where the pace is grueling, like you were saying? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And where I see a lot of inroads have been made with technology is obviously with the logical, which is cameras, gear, anything that is part of the physical production process and, and then into post-production with editorial, right? And you see a lot of startups that have been great for post-production, right, that offer different kinds of templates for motion graphics and they offer different kinds of stock footage and niche stock footage libraries and all this stuff that's coming online that's great but in terms of the actual storytelling and the process what line producers and production managers do day to day i think that's where you know our companies are coming in and trying to facilitate that a little bit but i think we have a lot of work to do in terms of getting the word out and also just integrating into their habits and their their workflows Absolutely. I think one of the inspirations that I, I guess what I love about both companies is the fact that we're helping creators, regardless of which end of the spectrum they are, if they're more on the sort of influencer side or they're more of like a, you know, sort of traditional filmmaker. I like that we're helping both of them. I mean, we're helping them find their crew, finding their the people that need to staff up their film and for us, finding them their location without either of them, their film would not be possible. And I like the fact that we're helping them regardless of how we feel about, you know, the subject or the media or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, the sort of unity message is that we're bringing them together and we're helping make their dreams and their projects a reality, you know, regardless of what they may be. And I think that's one way I think that we're helping the community a lot. And it's very interesting to see like where it'll all shake out this whole digital revolution thing. But regardless of that, I think it's very important that we stand with them and help make their projects happen because it's still art at the end of the day. 
and we're artists helping others. And at Rappel, at least, we believe that we're created by filmmakers for filmmakers. And I think that philosophy is something that is very strong in both our companies. Love it. Yeah, our tagline is created by producers for producers. Oh, there so you very, go. <laughs> very similar. So, well, let's switch gears. We're talking a lot about the industry, which I think is great, but would love to talk a little bit more about your career and, you know, things that we can learn from it. So let's start on a positive note. You've worked on a lot of cool projects. You know, I've seen some of your work. It's always fun to see a different director's work. Tell us about your favorite project and a little bit of background on that. Sure. So after I worked at DreamWorks on uh, How to Train Your Dragon, ended up freelancing at Paramount for a little bit. And then I worked at Digital Domain, which was then one of James Cameron's production companies with uh, Stan Winston. And uh, one of my favorite projects there was working on this film called Tron Legacy in 2010. It was a truly amazing experience. I got the job because I basically submitted a resume that had a PDF that wouldn't open. And I got a call back from HR the day after I submitted it. And, and I didn't know a single person at the company. I didn't have an in. You know, it's like it wasn't the typical Hollywood experience where you knew somebody that knew somebody that put a word in. It was not that at all. I sent a random email. I was like, hey, I love the original Tron. I would love to work on the sequel or I guess the remake. Here's my resume attached. Please hire me. HR at digitaldomain.com, like some sort of generic address. And I actually got a call the next day. And she's like, hey, got your resume, but it wouldn't open. And can you resend it? And so I resent it. And I was like, oh, boy, they, I wasted their time. They're going to be so pissed off. But the next thing you know, the next day I got a call. And they're like, hey, come in for an interview. And I came in for the interview. And the next thing you know, the day after that, I was working on Tron Legacy. So it was a really fun project being able to see sort of like the, the whole film come together. It's a very visual effects heavy film. And I really appreciated that experience because as an action director, visual effects is everything now so more than ever. And so being able to see such a VFX intense film come together was truly inspiring. And the folks I work with were amazingly talented, phenomenal, really, really cool people. We worked hard and played harder. You know, our producer took us out for Korean barbecue and karaoke and bottle service every weekend. It was insane. Then we started working on weekends and we still did it. You know, we went out on Friday night and then Saturday morning, we're like, hey, see you at eight. And so it was, it was a good time. It was the best of times and the worst of times, as they say. But overall, probably one of my favorite features that I've worked on so far. Very cool. You know, so many of us are in the industry and we come here with our hopes and dreams and we have that dream job in mind and that dream project. To some working on that project, if you just told them the name and said, hey, I worked on this project, they wouldn't understand the reality of what that actually means. There's so many unsung heroes on film sets, on TV sets, in the influencer world, all of these different places. I think that it's an interesting topic to explore, which is what's your advice to that young filmmaker who wants to be a director? I guess to answer your question, I think I would say the most important asset for anyone that's not baited yet and trying to make it in this industry is having a long-term strategy in mind, time. Everyone thinks that they're gonna move to this town and in a few months, a few years, maybe even a, a few weeks, they're going to be the next whatever it is, be it an actor, composer, producer, director, writer, everyone thinks that they're going to be the it person and they're going to have their break in a very short amount of time. So they don't really plan accordingly. They go, you know what, I'm going to give LA a year. And if I don't make in a year, you know, what? I'm moving back to Idaho. That's why you were saying earlier, 80% of all film school graduates don't end up working in film. It's for that reason. They don't realize that this is a grind. They all they see is the overnight successes. And yes, you have those breakout hits and discoveries. But 
those are were, were probably 10, five years in the making for them to get to that point. At they least. Sometimes. At least, yeah. I mean, yeah. you look at Morgan Freeman, for example. He did not become the Morgan Freeman that we know, <laughs> you know, until his 40s. I mean, you know, Ang Lee, you know, Oscar award-winning director for so many films, was a stay-at-home dad till his 40s. You know, we don't see these... You know, all we see are the people that have moved here six months later, they became that person. And those stories are true and it does happen. But the odds of that happening to you are like winning the lottery. You know, most of the time it won't happen to you. And you just have to face the reality of the situation, which is this might take a while, like any career. You know, it's the same like if you're in investment banking, you don't become the you know, founding partner or the managing director at Goldman Sachs like a year later, that's like a 20, 30 year trajectory. And the same could be said of the film industry. Just because you see an overnight success doesn't mean that is you. It could be you. It's a very slim chance. So you should plan for the contingency of that, which is assuming that it will take a while. And if you stick long enough to it, you know, your talent and your hard work will come to the top because the other part of it, which is connections and luck, get better and better the longer you stick at it. So my best advice for someone is to plan it. Take the time it needs to be successful. Absolutely agree. I mean, one of the things I keep coming back to, even at this point in my life, where I would say I'm maybe mid-career, I don't even, wouldn't say I've made it, right? But I've had a lot of wins and a lot of exciting times in my career. And I've been lucky enough to get to a place where I do what I love to do. And I'm in the industry that I love creating right so that's fantastic but at the same time i keep trying to remind myself in 2018 to enjoy the process mm. because i'm so fixated on trying to get a show made get a feature made produce this branded content for a new client that you forget how much we used to enjoy the process right so True. it's almost like I wish we could all get in a, a time capsule and go back in time to when we were the grunts and we had all these passion projects and we were so excited about just being on set. And I think if you can embrace that and take it throughout your career, then it's actually not really going to matter what projects you worked on and what you accomplished and how famous or not famous you became because you actually enjoyed the process. I think to Jordy's point, uh, enjoying the process and re seeing how cool it is for that person their first time on set is so incredibly important. Just a short story, I was working with this actor and I he had never been on set and he came out here with his hopes and dreams and I got him a day of background work and he took a selfie and his mom saw it and he called and he calls me and he from set and I'm like, oh God, is everything okay? <laughs> and what job did I put you up for? <laughs> and he goes, no dude, I just got off the phone with my mom and uh, she just wanted to say how proud she was that I came out here and that there are people here supporting what I want to do. And I mean, I brought, it still brings, it still gets me a little choked up because mm -hmm. it's like, it's so important to remember, you know, I saw the, we saw the footage or something from your, the shoot that you were working on last week. And, um, it's awesome, but the glitz and the glamor sometimes falls away the more you're doing it, you know, and we get weighed down. We forget that like, <laughs> I, you know, I think the other part of that is tribe, you know, and I think that that's something that you're really good at as well, you know, connecting really great people who are like-minded, you know, like our friends at ShareGrid and plug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll get the residual checks later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean like, when did you, when did you find that out and what's your advice for finding your tribe hmm. for the new person? Sure. 
Um, going first back to Jordy's point earlier, I got to say, though, that, you know, it's one of those things where I feel like it's, yeah, you're right. Jordy, I want to go back to your point earlier about the journey. You know, one of the things that I know about myself is I am the world's most impatient person. I hate it. I am very much a type A person that wants to get the results. I want to get to the end of the journey, forget about the process. Totally. Can and, you get to the point, by the way? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I'm just meandering around in the circle. <laughs> no, I'm the same exact way. I don't way, practice what so I, I preach. I totally yeah. empathize on a level that... Yeah. But what I realized is that, you know, I'm a big traveler, and I've been to 80 countries, and one of the things I realized about traveling is sometimes you just have to appreciate the journey. I was, I think it was 2015, I was traveling from Italy to... Austria and I was totally sick. I had this crazy raging fever. I was on a train by myself just like hemorrhaging like thoughts and just like I was like oh this sucks this is the worst thing ever. Looked out of the window and I saw the Alps for the first time and I was like holy crap this is amazing. This is phenomenal. And in that moment it hit me. We really have to appreciate this process, the train journey. Because if you look at it, right, and this is getting very metaphysical, so our whole lives are really working towards an end. And we all know what the result is. The end is really death for everybody at the end of the day, if you think about it. Like, no one will ever escape it. That's so. the title of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but if you think about it, seriously. like Death no one, for everybody. It is. <laughs> we can't escape it, you know? And it's just, so if we, if we think about the journey versus destination, the destination of our lives is going to end. Really, if we don't appreciate our lives, which is the journey, then we're going to wake up one day, 50 years from now, or potentially shorter, and be like, where did the journey go? And not realize that the journey was the best part of the experience. And so applying that to filmmaking, to startups, you know, it takes so long. But at the same time, we have to remind ourselves that really the journey is what matters and is where you learn the most and you develop and you grow and you maturing and get better. So I'm the worst person in the world at practicing this philosophy and this mantra but now that you brought it up, I really think that I, I should appreciate it more. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm really happy to hear that. I mean, I agree. I'm extremely impatient as well. So I think it's not just a reminder, right? But it's how do you form a habit around that? Because a lot of times folks philosophize. And if you read any sort of self-help books or like entrepreneurial books and, you know, devour that kind of material because I'm all about self-improvement. But they talk about doing things like appreciating the journey and anyone that's listening is probably going, okay, that's nice, but how the hell do I appreciate right. the journey? You know what I mean? Like someone just dumped a latte on me and I got to go home and like change my clothes. There like I'm not appreciating this journey right, right now. Right. So it is habitual. You need to develop that habit. You literally need to practice mm -hmm. just like you practice gratitude. You have to practice enjoying the journey. It has to be like, a pause and you have to, you know, there's a lot of folks that believe in writing to appreciate the journey, journaling and, mm. you know, actually capturing what it is. I don't do that. I probably should, you know, I think, but it's those kind of tactics that I think get you to the place where you do habitually enjoy the journey. True. And then I think if you can do that, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, actually, now that you brought that up in terms of the means of appreciating the journey, this is totally a plug for an app that I have. I don't know anyone on their team, but I love. It's called One Second a Day. I basically take one second of video every day, and I release a video every month, a 30-second video every month of my one second a day for each day of that just that just transpired. And it really, when I watch it, I go, wow, my month was actually not as terrible as I thought it was because you just shoot the best one second of every day, and you go, 
you know what? This journey is not that bad after all. So yeah, I highly recommend it, especially as filmmakers. One second every day. Don't yeah, know them. Don't know the uh, the company. I don't know anyone there. Don't get any residuals from them, but I really enjoy it. So <laughs> maybe you will now. Yeah, exactly. Love <laughs> it. Yeah, brand ambassador. I volunteer. Um, <laughs> sorry, Jasper. I totally forgot your question. Sorry, you were asking me about tribe. You know, how do you find your tribe? I would say to that point that finding your tribe is probably second to having patience. The second most important thing to succeed in Los Angeles, because when you come to this town. People will devour you and eat your lunch if you don't have decent quality control for friends. Everyone in this town, with the very, very few exceptions, are looking to get something from you. They're looking to exploit you, not necessarily in a very, not in a very sort of predatory sense, but they're more or less looking, what can I get out of this relationship? It's very transactional, I think would be a better way to describe it. And so when it's a very transactional relationship, you don't really have what you call a true friend group. And... What I would say to that is finding a tribe is extremely important. And the way you curate that is by finding people who like you for you, not what you can do for them, but who you are as a person, as an individual. You know, I met James Cameron once when I was working at DreamWorks and I asked him, what do you recommend as an aspiring director? This was like 2009, 2008. And he said, a rising tide floats all boats. You know, it's not about impressing the people 100%. at the top. Thank you. It's not, a, it's all Mr. Cameron's, you know. It's not about impressing the people at the top. It's about impressing the people around you and making those true, genuine, authentic connections. And it's through that process that as their fortunes rise, they'll remember you and they'll bring you up. And as your fortunes rise, you'll bring them up as well. So I think finding a group of really down to earth, modest, humble, and genuine people is the sort of key in finding your group and your tribe and your i guess your boy band to like take to the next level i couldn't agree more 110 percent, as i like to tell jasper when he says 100 <laughs> percent. so there's actually and we're plugging everywhere here but i think it's in the spirit of generosity is you know one of the sort of self-help authors that i follow on medium actually is a guy named ben hardy and he recently wrote an article that's entitled and you can find it on medium it's called how to create rare and life-changing relationships with anyone, which sounds hokey and you know potentially a little bit too touchy-feely, but I think it gets to the core of what you're saying. And he actually talks about two kinds of relationships. One is transactional, like you said, and he said the other is transformational. And it's up to you what you want to focus on, but he says, you know, highly recommend focusing on the latter hmm. because you think of your interactions in a completely different way. And again, I think you have to develop habit around this because by nature, we're human beings that are selfish. And so, you know, I want something out of you. I want something out of Jasper. And that's okay. I want several things out of you guys. But <laughs> it's how do we approach that? You know, how do we foster that so that it is transformational? It does come down to the patience that you're talking about. So if I do want something out of you, it means that I don't need to just get it and then move on with my life and not talk to you again or not talk to you for months and months, right? It's having an interest in the larger well-being of Brian and enjoying the journey of that relationship, right? And seeing what happens to you and can I help with that? And, and maybe not even help, can I just spectate and see what happens on social media and seeing your video for one second a day, right? Like what's April going to look like? I'm going to be curious about that, you know? So that creates a transformational relationship versus just strictly looking at what are you giving me and what am I giving you? Exactly. 
agree 120 percent so uh -oh. <laughs> and, uh, and i on broke that the scale note, all right so we've talked about the best story we've talked about the worst story now let's go for the third the trifecta what's the most ridiculous story whether good or bad sure as uh, many of you know, I run a startup called Raffle that basically connects uh, filmmakers to film locations. And so I put my own place up on Raffle just sort of to experience what it's like as a user to meet cool people, et cetera, et cetera. So I've rented out my house probably a dozen times since I started the uh, company. And one of the most interesting sort of stories was that I got a inquiry, I guess, from this music video producer. And I get requests like this pretty much every week. And this music video producer was like, hey, we're doing like a sort of just hip-hop, rap, R&B sort of music video. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, they were like, oh, we have a somewhat notable figure in the, our video. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever, you know, sure. Everyone thinks they're notable in Los Angeles, you know? So by all means. And totally. yeah, so I was like, fine, go crazy. So I rented out my place to them. And little did I know, I had rented out my place to Snoop Dogg and Faith Evans. It was just the trippiest feeling, getting your doorbell rung and opening, going downstairs and opening your door and Snoop Dogg's just standing there. He's like, hey, yo, what's up? And I was like, oh, is this a dream? Is this real? <laughs> Whose house am I in? So uh, yeah, Snoop Dogg and Faith Evans shot a music video in my house. You can actually go on YouTube and check it out. It's called, I think, Where We Party or something like that. It has like a million plus views on YouTube. Naturally, because it's Snoop Dogg, they brought an entourage. There was this whole party scene, started smoking joints, and my neighbors were pissed off. <laughs> Called the cops. The cops didn't do anything because it's Snoop Dogg. They were like, yo, this is cool. <laughs> they're joining so, in. They're yeah, in exactly. the music video, yeah, aren't they? It's, it's like a LAPD. Yeah, exactly. Community outreach is what they call it. So yeah, it was a truly ridiculous story and a really ridiculous experience. And yeah, it's something that I'll never, ever forget having Snoop Dogg and Faith Evans sitting on my Barcelona chairs in my living room doing a rap. I mean, it's just phenomenal. I mean, ever since I started co-founded this company many years ago, I never imagined that this would be the way that it would turn out. So let's talk about the founding. It's six years in, five years in. Yeah, I believe we started the company. We officially like became a company in 2013, 2012, and we launched it about two years ago. Okay. Oh, got it. Very cool. And how did the, the idea come to mind? Like, what's the genesis of the startup? Sure. So I basically, as you know, I used to work in visual effects at Digital Domain. I just finished up a film, Jack the Giant Slayer, and it was uh, Girl the Dragon Tattoo. I knew it was something to do with dragons. So I just finished working with David Fincher and Girl the Dragon Tattoo. And after wrapping up on those two shows, I decided to go freelance. The story is sort of like my mom had passed away. And so I had this sort of like quarter life crisis, for lack of a better word. I had this moment of looking up, asking myself, is this what I want to do? And the answer was no. I had already done everything I wanted to do with visual effects. I had learned more or less the overview of it, and I knew more or less what it all entailed. And so the answer to my question was, when I asked myself what I wanted to do was, I want to pursue directing. And so for me, I started doing a lot more freelance directing gigs. I was on HBO's Project Greenlight as one of the finalists. I did a thing for Condé Nast that won like Best Travel Video. And so what I guess was the sort of epiphany out of this experience was that no matter what kind of production I was working on, whether or not it was a big studio film or a small little indie production, finding a location was the bane of my existence. It was just a horrible, terrible, archaic experience where I literally had to go door to door trying to get a location. And I was just like, man, this is, there has to be a better way. 
And so I was, as I mentioned, I'm a big traveler and I always used Airbnb consistently. I love that company. And I was like, why not create the Airbnb for film locations? And this was, of course, you know, 2012, 2013. Nowadays, there's an Airbnb for pretty much everything. But back then, it was sort of a revolutionary idea. And so I decided to pursue that because as a filmmaker, I understand the struggles. I know and I've lived through this horrible nightmare that is finding locations. And I decided to not only become a director, but also help my fellow creatives and help my fellow filmmakers streamline the production process and make their lives that much easier. And if you think about it, it's really a win-win situation. You know, filmmakers get the locations they want and property owners get to make extra money on the side. Everybody benefits from it. So that was what sort of uh, was the genesis of the idea and uh, what caused us to want to become a company and, and try and change the film industry for the better. Not to get too much into product placement, but actually curious as you know, a filmmaker, what makes Rappel different from some of its competitors? Sure. As of right now, if you need a film location, you really are very limited. It boils down to places you've shot at before, going on Facebook or Craigslist and announcing to the world that you need a location, or you hire a location scout. Often location scouts and locations agencies charge a lot of money and they don't really guarantee results. There are some really phenomenal people that I know in those industries that are amazing, and I really respect them a lot. But for a lot of other people that I know, they've had very, very mixed results, and they often really can't afford to hire a locations manager. So for us, we wanted to democratize the process and essentially create a marketplace. So we're the only site that you can basically go on there, check out more than 1,500 commercial, residential, and industrial locations all over Los Angeles, and get in direct contact with the property owner or the property manager. You're cutting out the middleman. We're more like uh, matchmakers in that sense. So you can ask the questions you need to ask. No one's gonna be there in the middle. And then when you book through us, we function as like an escrow service that kind of basically secures the transaction, make sure there's a security deposit, insurance, all the good stuff to make sure that both parties are essentially happy and that everyone walks away with a, a good experience. Very cool. Yeah, and I can definitely attest to the challenges of finding locations. It's just, unless you've done it, People don't understand the complexity of it. And especially if you have third parties that have a vested interest in the location, like a client, exactly. then it gets even more complex because people don't understand the costs and, you know, some of the, the challenges and kind of relaying what might be possible with that location and what limitations there are and that sort of thing. Yeah, especially in Los Angeles, there's some locations that go, oh, we were on a Warner Brothers TV show last week. They paid us 10 grand. So you're you know, little indie student film can pay 10 grand, right? They think that's just the going rate. You know, right. they get this impression that just, that's just, oh, that's how much film shoots pay in general. And so one of the cool benefits of us is that our site, you know, our property owners understand that there are various tiers and various kinds of productions. You know, they maybe get paid five grand a day for this one production, but understand that a student may only be able to afford $500, $1,000 for a 12-hour day. So at least they get that, which is already like the first step in trying to secure locations, having realistic expectations. Definitely. And for the uninitiated out there, which in, to a large degree includes in, myself, right, is talk to us about the mechanics of the old guard with location managers and, you know, what do those costs look like? And, you know, just give us a little bit more in terms of why you did say that was archaic. Sure. One of the things that I guess that how you'd normally do it if a website like ours didn't exist is would, you'd have to hire a location scout. You would pay this person by the hour to essentially go out there and photograph or pound the pavement, as we like to call it, 
to try and find that look your that specific house specific bar specific restaurant you're looking for so essentially you're kind of sending out this person to the world to secure and find a location we find that it's much more efficient if you just took that online and you're able to essentially scout for free look at a location for free and then contact the representative who's in charge of the property as well and we find it's a lot more streamlined and you know time is money and so we save a lot of productions the time necessary to try and find a location i would say that i'm not knocking against scouts we have a lot of scouts on our site a lot of property managers that actually represent uh, properties on our site and a lot of location scouts that use us to find their locations for a film scouts are actually very useful when it comes to say if you need something really unique like let's say you want a medieval castle in los angeles you know that might be something very difficult i don't think we have any on our site any castles but that would be a great application of a scout but for everything else like homes bars restaurants office buildings we got you covered and so that's kind of what the difference is between a i guess locations agency or you know hiring a locations department as opposed to using us and I also want to say too that it's very very interchangeable you know scouts love us scouts use us all the time you know it's not something where you use us and you know you don't need a scout anymore a lot of times we make a scout's job that much more efficient and effective and more importantly quicker and easier because we exist once you have a location so you're on rapple you find the most beautiful bar that you can use for your music video great you've connected what are some of the challenges that come after that sure i would say the process after a scout i would say would be a tech scout is actually going on location figuring out the sort of nitty-gritty logistics that no one is a fan of but are so absolutely necessary you know the questions you want to ask a location owner or a location rep would be where are the bathrooms where are the you know crew parking areas what are the noise restrictions what are the power arrangements like is there going to be enough power do i need to bring in a generator are there any special considerations? Are there any pets on site that maybe my crew might be allergic to? So there are a lot of these sort of nitty gritty questions and we actually have a checklist on our site that we're gonna release at some point that run people through what are some of the legitimate questions you should ask location owners. So after getting that all set up and answering, getting the location owner to answer all these questions, I would say it really boils down to you know getting a permit after that. And some of our users get permits, some of them don't. It really depends on the footprint. You know, If it's one of those things where you have three guys in a room like us right now just doing a little web thing or doing a YouTube series, then, you know, maybe you can get away with not doing it. That's entirely their prerogative. And sometimes, you know, if it's a big setup, a big footprint, you know, there's a lot of grip trucks on the street and all that good stuff, then yeah, absolutely get a permit. We have a great relationship with Film Los Angeles, uh, Film LA. We also work with Film Permits Unlimited, who have basically been film expediters for permits for dozens and dozens of years. Also making sure that their insurance requirements are set. You know, we work with Athos Insurance based out of Pasadena. They provide excellent insurance options, which will soon be coming to the site as well. And, um, you know, making sure that the property owner is okay with your certificate of insurance. And then from there, making sure you take before and after photos when you're on set, you know, making sure that everything is reset the way it was so the property is happy with your presence there. Because a lot of times we have to remember that we're guests, you know, whether or not it's someone's house, someone's office, someone's place of worship, it's a very, you know, you're basically a only a temporary presence on their property. And so being able to be respectful and be mindful and being considerate is something that will go a long, long, long way in making sure that your production goes well. So those are some of the logistical challenges, but nothing that, you know, no one can't work out. Absolutely. And on that last point, just a bit of 
a note on karma because I just have a huge pet peeve with crew not taking care of the space. And I'm talking about, you know, kind of basics of you're moving really heavy equipment a lot of times and understand that that's hard. It's hard work. But just being careful to not like drag C stands across a hardwood floor, like stuff that most of the time should be common sense, but it's almost just like a reminder that that is someone's place. So, and even if you are paying thousands and thousands of dollars for it, that doesn't give you the right to cause thousands of dollars of damage to it, right? Absolutely. That's one of the biggest things that we, I think that's one of the biggest benefits of using Rappel, not to just plug the company, but honestly, even as a filmmaker, I love our security deposit system. So when I go out there and I book locations, you know, I make sure that on Rappel that there's a security deposit set by the location. So God forbid, if something were to happen, it can just come out straight electronically from the security deposit in the same way you have a security deposit for you know, your apartment or a security deposit for your Airbnb booking. So for me, that's very useful. Property owners love it because now they go, okay, great. So you have a $200 deposit, you know, you broke my $50 of like favorite bug. You know, now you can go just take it out of the deposit as opposed to going, oh, now you got to issue me a check or you got to give me, you know, cash or something along those lines. So it's very useful and it's just very much more efficient and just straightforward to have the system in place that both filmmakers and property owners can benefit from that. Although I will say that the chances of something actually breaking have been extremely rare. We've been in operation for two years now, and knock on wood, nothing bad has happened in terms of you know people losing thousands and thousands of dollars. It's more just been oh this thing there's a you know little scrape on the wall that's a fifty dollar paint you know the, to just hire someone to come out and paint it. You know someone's dropped a, a glass or something like that or scratched a little thing here and there. It's always been very very minor, which I think truly speaks volumes to how amazing our users are and how respectful they've been. So. I think that's been one of the great benefits of, uh, of us. Very cool. So what's next? What's next? That's a very good question. I think having done this for close to two years now, I think we're basically working to streamline the process and we're working to make it even more convenient and even more centric around what people, our user base has told us they want. One of our biggest announcements soon is going to be the inclusion of insurance, uh, again, through Athos Insurance of Pasadena. And we're going to be able to offer insurance options, affordable insurance options, I should add, on the site. So that way people don't have to go out there and, and get a separate policy. Now you can actually purchase third-party property damage on the site. At some point, we'd love to integrate permits, although that's something that's a dream of mine, to be able to have a fully stacked and integrated location scouting, securing, and permitting process. That's something that I love as well. We're also in the middle of a redesign. You know, when we first started it, because we're not from a web tech background, to be honest with you, the site looked like it was something from the late 90s. You know, it was very MySpace-y. It was, frankly speaking, very dated. And we did an upgrade last year that now brought it to the 2000s era. And now we're doing a third iteration of the site that it's going to be, I'm really excited for it. It's going to look very current. It's going to be a completely different overhaul booking process, mobile-friendly we think it's going to be really knocking it out of the park and put it to, I guess, and be, I guess, current with the 21st century. So um, we're really excited about that. And we're hoping to keep on serving our users and making sure that we make their lives better and being able to benefit uh, both properties and filmmakers. And I think it's something that both sides are going to enjoy. That's great. And I think, you know, from a Marching Penguin standpoint, we look forward to using you guys at some point in the near future. So Yeah, and likewise, cool. I should also mention too, we're doing a referral program and that gives out like credit or coupons. So definitely hit me up when you do. And uh, yeah, we yeah. can definitely make that happen. That sounds great. So just to kind of bring it all together, we've talked a little bit about 
your film career. We've talked about Rappel. We've talked about some fun stories, but it's a lot. It's like a lot of work. How do you balance all that? How do you keep the priorities straight? That is a very good question. And I'll be honest with you, one that I still completely struggle with. I have very bad hand-eye coordination, so I'm a very bad juggler. So in terms of mental juggling, I'm a little bit better, I like to think. It's been very, very difficult to be able to go from a, what I call a nine to nine job at Rappel and then go back home and have to work on a project, like either do script development or storyboard or whatever it has to do. So I would say the best and most effective way I've been able to do my job is by having an amazing team behind me. You know, having the Rappel team, there's five of us in an office in Culver City working more or less 24 seven to make this whole thing work. I think that has been the key to my greatest success. I'm a very collaborative person only because I am only good at a few things. <laughs> I can't do everything, and so I hire to my weaknesses, meaning if I'm not good at something, I will bring someone on board that knows what they're doing better than I ever could. I am very realistic about what I can or cannot do in a day, and so without my team of Derek, Aaron, Brandon, James, and Steven, I would not be where I am today, and uh, that has truly been my strength as being able to bring people in together, working towards a common good. And I like to think that both sides of it. My sort of co-founder of a startup versus being a freelance director, they're both kind of mutually related. If you think about it, it's because I am a director that I'm able to stay true to our roots as a company made by filmmakers for filmmakers. So I can constantly iterate and improve on the process because I know I can actually tell people with absolute certainty that I have been through the crap as well. And I know how to develop and make this thing better for them because I am them. And same from the property owner side too. I rent out my house and raffle all the time. And because I am a property owner, I get their struggle as well. And so for me, being able to be on the platform and be a director for me is very symbiotic. They would not, they coexist. And to me, they're very much two halves of the same whole. Very cool. Brian, it's been a pleasure having you on learning about your career and, and about Rapple. And, you know, we'll have to have you on again when the, the new site comes out. Absolutely. And likewise, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been, it's been an absolute blast. I love talking not only about the industry, but just about our philosophy and life and everything in general. I really respect what you guys are doing at My Producer, and I look forward to using you guys too in the near future. And hopefully together we'll be able to revolutionize and change this industry for the better. Awesome. 100%. 100 110? 120? There we go. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Hell yeah. Thanks again. My pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Marching Penguin, digital production studio. Since 2012, Marching Penguin has been producing premium digital content for venture-backed startups and Fortune 500 companies alike. With more than 1,000 produced videos to date, Marching Penguin has a broad experience set to accommodate marketers looking to create a stronger online footprint with video. Visit GoMarchingPenguin.com to learn more today.